the journey of the awakening heart is in many ways a journey of investigation, a journey of exploration. And we can perhaps describe or summarize the nature of that investigation with the question, who am I? Or equally, what is this that we call life? Investigation is recognized as one of the factors of awakening in the Buddhist teaching. One of the seven factors which, in coming together, give rise to the awakening of the heart-mind. And it is recognized as being the factor which is most directly conducive and closest to awakening. The factor of inquiry, therefore, is a very important one for us. And exploring the question, who am I? What is the nature of this experience? This is an incredibly important question for us. In our practice, we connect with the actuality of our experience. We learn to not dwell in the past and the future so habitually as we are used to. To not superimpose concepts and ideas upon our experience, but to try and actually more immediately, more directly, more intimately connect with just what is happening. And from that place of grounded and connected relationship to just what is happening, we are able to look more deeply. We can begin to investigate, to see what is true. We can look beyond the appearances. It's our tendency and our habit, rather often, to respond without really looking very carefully, without seeing, perhaps, beyond the surface appearance. Early last year, when I was meditating at home one morning, I opened my eyes at the end of the sitting. And on the windowsill, about, I guess, five or six feet in front of me, there was a small snail just making its way across the windowsill. And it was quite early on a cool February morning. And I just opened my eyes to the sight of this beautiful little creature, so tender. You could see it's the little spiral of the shell with the, the markings on it. And that sort of soft, translucent body, shimmering, glimmering, slightly moist and that little head and the little eyes with the two little stalks and the eyes on top. And I was just, wow, how beautiful. And then I thought, what's it doing in here? Now, it was reasonably clear to me what had happened, as I thought, because, in fact, the window had needed to be... um, I'd had to paint the window recently, just, in fact, the day before, because it wasn't closing, and so I'd trimmed a piece of wood off it with a plane and then painted it so it wouldn't rot, and then left it open so it would dry. And I thought, oh, this snail's coming through the open window in the cold of February. Perhaps it's too cold outside. It probably couldn't survive out there at this time of year. So it's come into somewhere warm. Then I thought, but there's nothing for it to eat in here. What's it going to do? And I was rather perplexed, sitting there, looking at the snail. And then this thought came to mind. I thought, ah, I know what. My neighbours who live on the same estate, they have a greenhouse. And it's nice and, warm, nice and warm and there's plenty to eat. And I thought, I'm sure they won't mind, just one little snail, at least if I don't tell them they won't mind. So I felt really relieved, having solved this dilemma. And I reached up, I stood up and reached towards the snail to pick it up and realised that it was a wood shaving from when I trimmed the window. And this whole process had arisen and gone on about a wood shaving. And you know, I'd really seen those little eyes on that stalk. And I'd felt its little being existing and worried for it. And it was kind of a a useful reminder 
to each of us, I feel, maybe, certainly for, <coughs> for me, to look a little more deeply, to look a little beyond that first impression. Often we react to the first image without actually looking more deeply. And meditation asks us to look more deeply, to not just assume that the first impression, the first image, the appearance is actually the truth. And it asks us, meditation asks us to look at what we call who we are, what we call ourselves, in a spirit of investigation, to see what is true for ourselves, to see if there is a truth that is more deep, more real, behind the appearance. We have the sense of being someone that feels quite tangible to us some of the times, and other times it perhaps feels a little shaky. And if we look at it, we can see that it's built up of this, in a way, great big heap of memories and associations and, and descriptions of different aspects of what we feel makes us who we are. Tendencies and patterns and appearances and history. And we see that these concepts of who we are are born from the past. When we think of who we are, we think of what we have done, who we have been, what relationships we have had. It's all born in the past. And then from that past, it's somehow projected into the future that we will continue to be this person that we think we are. And it's very much based on that past and that future, dwelling and fascination. The sense of who we are very rarely is grounded in what's happening in this moment. It's much more that this moment is being defined by the past and the future and the importance we give to them rather than being allowed to stand by itself. And so meditation is an opportunity, an invitation to really bring a deep question into our being from within a place or resting in a place of focus and of steadiness, a place of connection that we cultivate through our practice. What is the truth of this existence that we find ourselves in? And it it invites us to not accept the explanations and the theories that come through different religions, whether traditional religions or whether new ones that we've embraced. Equally not to accept the views and the ideas that come from science, which is really just another modern religion which most people tend to believe in without ever really checking out. But to actually look at our own experience. What do we find? Most of us, when we look at our experience, what we find is that what's happening is this flow of sensory experience. Sights and sounds, smells and tastes, touch, which is sensations in the body, thoughts and feelings. Various combinations and mixtures of that is what is happening in any given moment, is what was happening in any moment of our past, and is what will be happening in any moment in our future. So this movement, this experience of the five sense doors and the contact that we experience at them, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind known as the sixth sense door with thoughts and feelings arising therein, we tend to believe very strongly that this is who we are. This feels like the domain of our most intimate experience. It's, it's the most close that we feel we can come to ourselves. And we tend to think, this is me, or this is my possession, I am the owner of this, or I am this. But while we look and we see that that's going on and we have this view and perspective about it, what we also notice in meditation, and we can't see this too often it would seem, we notice that somehow all this going, this process, this experience is going on, but it's not in our control. It's not as we would wish it to be. It doesn't do what we tell it to do. It doesn't stop or start according to our wishes. If I ring the bell, you can't just decide not to hear it. It doesn't work like that. If you decide to have a certain thought, 
It might happen, it might not. A certain feeling, even less chance that you can make it happen. And the Buddha once said, can we claim that which we cannot control to be who we are, to be our possession? Is it not the nature of that which we would claim to own that at least we could do what we wanted with it? Isn't that what ownership is? And the answer really is no. We would not claim that to be our own which we could not control. And yet somehow our inner life we tend to do that with. We tend to claim it as me. We tend to use it. We tend to use our experience to create, to inflate or to deflate a sense of our identity, of who we believe, who we say, who we cling to as a sense of being who we are. And those experiences, sometimes we see them as threatening to our sense of who we wish to be or sometimes as flattering or as enhancing ourselves. And we push them away or grasp towards them accordingly. And we've all seen it happening, I'm sure, through the retreat and these days. Now we have a good sitting, what we call a good sitting. And it's not just a good sitting. Suddenly, I'm a good meditator. And, and we really are. Or it's what we call a bad sitting, whatever that might be. And suddenly, I'm a bad meditator. It's not just that an experience happens, and oh yeah, that happened, I wandered off, mind was all over the place. There's that sense of identity arising so close together with the experience. We might, you know, find ourselves in the meal queue and feeling very restrained, taking a very modest portion of food and walking away just feeling such a great sense of our wonderful renunciation and how holy we are. We've become this sort of, this renunciate in the space of a few spoonfuls less of food. And then when we, you know, and, and this is who we are. And then the next time we arrive, we're thinking, you know, I was so gr- such a great renunciate the last time. Well, I guess I can make up for it this time. And we walk away and see that our plate is piled twice as high and more than we can eat. And we think, oh gosh, I'm a bit of a greedy pig, aren't I? <laughs> and, and this identity arises around what happens so easily and so quickly. You know, we're focused. We have a sense of continuity in our practice and we're starting to think, ah, this is great. And then we're spaced out, we're lost, we're all over the place. Body? What body? (laughs) And, you know, it takes a while for us to realise sometimes that it's happened. But there's another whole identity that arises with it. And to see that process, how it goes on, to see how it unfolds, how it can be sort of like an overlay to everything that happens. And it is an overlay. It's something that somehow seems to go along with the process of life. But we tend to take it as the truth of it and believe it. So to look at how much of what we're doing is to do with somehow trying to create, to reinforce or to protect a self-image, a way of viewing ourselves that we wish to view ourselves or we wish others to view ourselves in a certain way. And how much of that we're doing as we go along? When we walk mindfully, we can start off really feeling our feet touching the ground, but then we just notice how mindfully we're doing it and then we start to wonder, has anyone else noticed? (laughs) And this whole sense of me. Or equally, we stumble as we walk. We think, oh gosh, I've almost forgotten how to walk. What a class. And I hope no one else saw, what will they think of me? Now I've done retreats before, I should have learnt how to walk by now. And that, that sense of trying to project the positive and yet also fearing projecting the negative self-image, how much that influences what we do. You know, we'd like a cup of tea in the meditation hall. We'd really like to bring one in with us, but probably we think, maybe it's not bad, maybe there's nothing wrong, but what will everyone else think? I better not. And it's probably wise in that case not to, but often it's that sense of what other people will think of us, how they will view us, that actually restrains us. Sometimes in skillful ways, other ways, other times in ways that really limit in an unskillful and a really 
destructive way, what is possible for us? Because we give too much weight to that projection of identity, of view, and how important it is to us. So to see the way we use our experiences to define ourselves, our history, our story that says, I am the way I am, and then we have a quick, short summary of why I am the way I am, because da-da-da, my parents this, my family that, my work this, my partner that. That's why I am like this. And yet, both the identity and the memory of why we be asked, it tends to be a very partial picture. It tends to be just focusing on one thing. And it's usually either something we really don't like or something we really do like, that we've highlighted, that we've thought about it again and again until it's somehow magnified out of proportion to the whole range of our history. Now, to remember our past, to remember it fully, would take as long as it was to live it. When we think we're remembering how it was, we're remembering a tiny fraction of it and often a distorted fraction of it. We, we, we identify with our roles. We say, I am the parent, the partner, the child, the worker in this field or that field. I am the meditator. And just because of the activity that we're engaged in, we have a sense of identity arising. We have a way we, we, we observe what our tendencies are, the things that we do rather frequently and in familiar ways. And we say, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm someone who always arrives late for lunch because I'm pretty relaxed about that sort of thing. Or I'm someone who always comes into the sitting early because I like to really, you know, try hard. We, have these, we see our patterns, our tendencies. Or we have qualities that we see in ourselves. Sometimes qualities feel so close to us. At times we might feel some loving kindness touching our hearts. We think... It's a quality arising in that moment. And, oh, gosh, yes, I'm really a loving person. And of course, the next time, it's likely to be that we're so expecting of it and we're sure we're quite good at it that we actually find we're rather hard or tight or contracted. And then with a contracted person or with a, with a negative person or the reactive person. And the qualities and the experience, again, we just... We create moment after moment, image after image. And these images are constantly changing, constantly being replaced one with another. Yet in the moment of each one arising, so often we just believe them. (coughs) We give them so much weight. We have this sense that I am the person who is like this, who has this tendency who had that experience, who will, do, 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 continue in the same fashion. So to see, how does this happen? How does it come about that we're relating to our experience like this? What's going on for us that creates that, that such a fundamentally defining element of our experience and one which it seems that we share with everyone else and which is so common that it's taken for granted that it truly is the way things are. Sometimes when we're rather quiet, rather still and we just are present we can notice as we make contact with a person or a situation or a particular experience we can notice that sense of self arising, that sense of identity in some perhaps unformed or clearly formed manner, but just a sense of self that maybe has as its characteristic a sense of this here and that there, whatever it might be. There's a sense of self and other. That's almost like the first movement of identity that arises in that arising of self. And then with that, what we very quickly start to do is we look at self and we look at other and we start to pick out the characteristics. We look for measurable qualities like colour, like shape, like clothing, like whatever they might be doing, are they doing it good or bad? Whatever I might be doing, am I doing it good or bad? And we start to, we find certain qualities that we can measure in some way. 
And then we start to make comparisons. We start to there's this this process whereby we, we, we seek to place ourselves in relationship to them by a comparison that says, I am the same as, I am better than, or I am worse than this person. And and in that process we find a solidifying of our sense of who we are. Because not only do we have a quality that we've identified in ourselves, but we have a comparison to someone else who has that quality in different measure, perhaps. You know, I'm more mindful than the person sitting beside me fidgeting. Or perhaps that person over there must be much more enlightened. They haven't moved all morning. And whatever we notice, whenever we see that process, to see how there's this contraction of self that happens in that. That there's this way that we look we look into the world to try and measure it, to try and measure other people, to try and measure ourselves. Because that, that measurement gives us some ability to, in a way, hang our identity on. It gives us a framework for saying who I am. And without it, we're kind of left in a rather undefined space that's incredibly uncomfortable. And that sense of often elevating or putting down another and ourselves that goes on at times, it can be so painful, so difficult. And yet to see it happening, to see how it arises, it, it seems that most of us fall into one of two different positions with the way we relate to our inner life. And of course it's a spectrum, so I'm speaking generally here. It's not so black and white. But some people tend to, it seems, hold perhaps more of a negative self-image, where the tendency is to focus on the negative view of oneself and to see what is wrong and what is bad and where I could have done it better. And when we're doing that, what we might notice is that it's actually really painful to hold that view, to have that sense that there's somehow there's something wrong with me or I'm not good enough or everyone else is better than I. And that in the pain of that sense of that negative self-view, self-image, we're often somehow trying to refute it, to disprove it, to show in some way that we're not really that bad, that we're not really worth that. Although we fear that we might be, we hope that in fact we are not. And the other pattern that we might notice in ourselves, and again for some people it may be more predominant, is that we actually might find the story more along the lines of you're doing really well. Actually, you must be doing better than most people out there. Perhaps you're even doing the best. And in our culture, I think that's perhaps less common than the other, but it's certainly there at times. And in that, again, there's a certain pleasantness about being able to give oneself a nice pat on the back for our self-image, but there's also a fear woven right into it that feeling we have to keep proving it. We're not ever very happy just to say, okay, I am really better. That's, that's established now. I can sort of just hang out. There's much more a sense of I've got to keep doing more and better and better and more perfect and better than some, you know, I'm better than everyone here, but am I better than everyone else? You know? And that whole process can go on. And in that sense of positive self-image and the clinging to that, there's this element of fear that in fact that's not true. That in fact we're not better, that we maybe we're worse. And there's this way that we swing between the two. We swing between the two. Hoping for the positive, fearing the negative, self-image. And that whole movement of trying to either prove the positive or disprove the negative in some ways it's pointing out to us that we don't wholeheartedly believe it. At a certain level, yes, we believe it. That's why it hurts. That's why we're stuck in it to the degree we are. But at another level, we don't quite believe it. Because, because it's kind of changing, because it's kind of fluid, there's always the hope that it'll get better and the fear that it could get worse. And it's a pretty valid hope and fear because it may well do either. And we don't always have a lot of control over which way it's going. 
because the experience that unfolds is as we've seen again and again not in our control not according to the way we might wish it at all times so we we can spend an incredible amount of effort trying to organize our outer experience or our inner world into a certain way or shape or form that will give us back the reflection we want to see. But even when we manage it just for a moment, that's all that we have. And even in that moment there's no rest. There's no peace. Because there's this ongoing pressure to be someone, to become something. And to sustain that movement of becoming in the face of the random unfoldment and chaotic changes of life that are just amazing in their possibility is an incredible amount of work. And yet, it seems we've got so much enthusiasm for it. It's incredibly hard work, it's really difficult, it's not satisfying at all, and yet we give ourselves to it so wholeheartedly, so much of the time. What has it got to offer us? What is drawing us in this way? The sense of building an identity, of establishing who we are. In our world, we're clearly required in many situations to know who we are, to say who we are. We even do it to you on the registration forms. We ask, who are you? Give us your name. Tell us your occupation. We'd like to know some details. And in many other circumstances, of course, there's a sense where we sneak, we're asked, expected to be able to present somebody. And we're expected to present a reasonably coherent and consistent somebody. It's not okay to be somebody A today and somebody B tomorrow. People say, hey, yesterday you weren't like that. What's going on? That's not all right. I want you to be reliable, consistent, and the way I want you and like you to be, not just any old-fashioned. And we feel that pressure from outside. We equally feel that pressure from inside. A sense of wanting reliability, wanting predictability, wanting, in a way, a sense of somewhere we can hang out, somewhere that we can make into a home where... We, we feel a sense of being safe, of being protected from the, the challenges and the threats of an unpredictable and at times seemingly dangerous world. And we can feel at times so vulnerable in the face of that world that impinges on us in so many ways that are at times painful and difficult, at times overwhelming. That it feels like we need to create some kind of structure in order to be able to deal with this world. We need to know how to relate in a certain circumstance. When someone comes in and wants to talk to us about matters of sort of political significance, we've got to know what our views are and our opinions or else we'll look silly. And then we become someone who is a left wing or a right wing or a no wing or whatever else we might find us, wherever else we find ourselves in the political world. And that becomes a piece of identity. And this process offers to us a sense that maybe we can be safe. Maybe we can be comfortable within this sense of who I am that is constructed on a moment-to-moment basis. And as we construct it, it's kind of fluid, it's kind of soft. And we can be one thing in one moment and something else in the next moment. But as we repeat that process again and again and again, the certain patterns and the tendencies that repeat themselves start to harden, start to calcify, start to become solid so we can't see anything else. And that's when I am like this. And there's no possibility of anything else. I'm a frightened person. We can't imagine the possibility of courage in our life because this is who we've become. We can't even notice when we might actually act courageously. We don't see it. We don't recognize it, although it happens. 
because that identity has become that solid. And we're so busy trying to solidify, to stabilize, to at times repair that sense of a safe, predictable inner world, which we call who I am. To find it, make it into something that's relatively comfortable, so there's not too many unpleasant sort of aspects to it. And they can often be the things we come along to retreat thinking, I'm going to work on that. I want to sort of round off those rough edges and add a bit of padding to that sort of pointy bit there and make it a bit more comfortable to inhabit this inner world. And there's a place for that, of course, and there's a value to it. But where does it stop? Where does it stop? Because it seems we can just keep on doing it. And no matter how comfortable we might make it, in one moment, in another moment it can fall apart. And in that process of building up a sense of self, in that process of establishing these patterns, what we often find is that the tendencies that we create and that we solidify are the tendencies which seem to be offering to either protect us from that which we fear or to provide us with that which we seek for, which we wish for. And that that's what we define as a successful pattern. And a successful and well-integrated personality is one that's primarily made up of successful strategies and approaches and tendencies and that doesn't have too many in that are unsuccessful. That's how we tend to kind of think about it. But we build up the sense of who we are and some of these things are useful skills and can be born of wisdom and of great value to us. So again, they have their place. Others, of course, really can limit us so incredibly when we're driven by fear and by grasping into certain patterns of behavior that we feel we cannot free ourselves from. And in meditation, when we encounter these, it's sometimes really useful just to notice, just to notice how powerful that wish to follow, to reenact the pattern is. Because to not reenact the pattern, whether it might be avoiding something that we fear, not going into a difficult situation, in that situation, to reenact the pattern means we don't have to feel the fear. And sometimes we'd rather be a prisoner of the pattern and to have to feel the fear. But actually, if we can allow ourselves to meet the experience of the fear, we can find that we are not a prisoner of it if we do not make ourselves a prisoner of it. And learning to be with that which we, which is driving us in the pattern. Without having to fix the pattern or get rid of the pattern or turn it into something else, often actually empowers us in relationship to it, in the midst of it. So not needing to think in terms of getting rid of or fixing, but actually understanding what hooks us in the pattern and learning for ourselves that we can unhook ourselves through our willingness to not accept the ideology that says, I must avoid that fear by following this pattern. Or I must avoid feeling the pain of that wanting by acting out this path, whatever it might be. And so then again, we can question, well, what in the structure that we build is being protected? Because it's a structure that we build and we feel how solid it is. I mean, some of you might be saying, sitting there thinking, well, what do you mean we build it? It's solid, it was always there. It looks that solid, sure. That's the appearance. The appearance looks that solid. Because it's never been questioned. It's never been looked deeply into. But if we look, what do we find inside the sense of identity? What is enclosed within it? I'd like to read a piece from the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Then this piece is actually speaking about houses. But it's a very, I think, precise metaphor for the way we create ourselves. 
And he asks. Well, he, he speaks of uh, the wish to build houses born of fear, to protect oneself, to be safe, to protect from the elements and the wild animals and the dangerous neighbours. In the same way, perhaps, we build self. And then he says, Oh, tell me, people, what have you in these houses? And what is it you guard with fastened doors? Have you peace? The quiet urge that reveals your power? Have you remembrances? The glimmering arches that span the summits of the mind? Have you beauty that leads the heart from things fashioned of wood and stone to the holy mountain? Tell me, have you these in your houses? Or have you only comfort and the lust for comfort? That stealthy thing that enters the house as a guest, then becomes a host and then a master. What do we find within when we look inside? In the sense of self, what is there enclosed within the walls that we have built, within the structure? What we often find is the walls enclose the very fears and the desires which have built that structure. That's what we find within. That's what we often experience. And those fears and desires are enclosed together with a sense of separation, a separate individuality and distance from other that actually drives the movement of fear and desire into building the sense of identity to protect itself. But there in the structure, the sense of separateness, the fear and desire that it has given rise to, in there we find ourselves imprisoned. That's what we're stuck with on the inside. The structure that's built out of those forces actually imprisoned us within them. And we see we can try and make it comfortable in there. But I really enjoy the line. Comfort. Have you comfort and the lust for comfort? That stealthy thing that enters the house as a guest then becomes a host and then a master. You know, there's a place for comfort in our lives. We don't have to sit on beds of nails. But how much do we allow comfort and our lust and our wanting for comfort, our unwillingness to be uncomfortable, to determine our choices, and at times undermine and discourage us from following the movements of our heart that speak to us of things much more important than comfort. Meditation practice is not designed to make you more comfortable. You may have got an inkling of that already. It's not an accident. Sometimes we need to shake that comfort in order to shake our addiction and our intoxication with comfort and to step into the condition that's a little bit more raw, a little bit more open. Just as when we go outside of four walls and spend time outdoors, perhaps walking mindfully back and forth, perhaps sleeping under the stars or sitting at the beach. And we start to feel a sense of being exposed to something larger, connected to something larger. And yet at the same time, we are rather vulnerable in that place. To be willing to question, we don't have to renounce Identity. We don't have to say, well, Buddha said, didn't have one, so I haven't got one. There's no self, well, I'll just forget about all of that then. No self, no problem, as they say. It's not actually like that. It's not like a view or a belief that we take. I used to have a self, now I don't. <laughs> that doesn't really make any difference. It doesn't actually serve us. But to look and see what's there. What's actually happening in our moment-to-moment experience? To ask that question really deeply. Who am I? Or what is this? It's 
when we bring a, a really sincere and dedicated quality of presence to that question, to really be seeking truth, not answers, not answers, because our mind has got plenty of answers and the experts have got plenty of answers, but answers are not what this question asks for. This question asks for us actually to rest in a space where we don't necessarily know the answer, and yet we're genuinely, wholeheartedly willing to hear what life may speak to us in that place. And when we open, when we let go into the fact that we don't know, when we allow ourselves to be humbled by the vastness of that question, what is this? Who is this that walks on the earth beneath the stars? If we allow a humility to come to our mind and our being, the heart responds. Life responds to us. And as we look, we perhaps start to see a life, we start to see life a little differently. We see that there's a process going on, that there's a flow, a movement of one moment and one form constantly flowing, transmuting, changing into the next. We see that we were a child and now we are an adult. One day we will be old. And we can look and ask ourselves, where? is the body that we had in the past. Can we find it? Is it somewhere? Where are the thoughts and the experience? you know how many we've had of them in our lives? How many hundreds, if not thousands and millions of thoughts and experiences we've had? Can you find a single one of them right now? Only the memory of them, perhaps. A small number of them. And that's a memory happening now. And of the body you will have in the future. Where is it? Can you find it? It's not waiting in the next room. It's not there sort of ready for you to pick it up when this one's worn out. And the thoughts and the experiences of the future, they're not sort of there waiting for us. They don't exist. They couldn't. And yet we so often think in terms of them being there, that past and that future. We might just imagine looking at a river to see the water running, flowing, changing. How the river changes, it's not the same in any given moment. The patterns of waves and ripples changing. At times it's low, at times running high and fast. Sometimes muddy, sometimes clear. Sometimes full of leaves in the fall, in the autumn. And we might say, what is the nature of the river? What is it that makes it the river? It's not just the water flowing along, nor is it simply the bed in which the water flows. And yet, there's more to it than just those two together, the bed and the water. And yet, it's not quite defined just by those two alone either. There's also this element and this quality of the flow the sense of movement of the river that flows to the ocean. And life, our life and all of life, is a flow that we see directly, that we apprehend consciously in our meditation as we see how it moves. And the water that moves in the river, perhaps rising in the ocean, fly, flowing to the air as it evaporates, coming down as rain onto the land, draining into the rivers, and the streams and flowing back to the ocean. We see the water move in this way and yet it's bound to neither the ocean nor the river nor the air nor the earth. It's not limited or defined by any one of them though at any given time it takes the shape of where it finds itself to be whether the ocean or the stream. to see that our life takes the shape of what is happening in this moment and yet is not defined by it. The truth of our life expresses itself through what is happening in sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts and feelings. Yes, it must. 
But there's more to it than that. I have a poem. I'm not sure how well it is to listen to because I've only read it, not heard it, and it's maybe quite wordy, but I find it rather lovely. It's written by Amaro Bhikkhu, as he was then now, Ajahn Amaro, the um, abbot of the monastery in California, associated with Amravati. It's called Self-Portrait. My father is a judge of dogs. My sister Katie dislikes frogs. My sister Jane is fond of horses. And mother dear, well she, of course, is an angel who is past compare. And then there's me. But do I dare to claim that I am that or this and I am swimming in what is? The question is beyond the reach of petty mind for on the beach of senses beat the endless tides of births and deaths, the carpet rides, of cherished thoughts and memories, of wives and lives and family. Waves crashing in and washing back, creating past and future in a sack, backburdening a being blind and gripping too intense to find the architect of all their pain, the singer of the sad refrain who builds these realms of birth and death, inhaling and exhaling breath, inhaling birth, exhaling death. Confused, incomprehensibly bizarre, clutching waves we think we are, so lost that we forget the eye of wisdom which does not belie the truth of waves and sand and sea, yet is transcendent over thee. So what awesome space is this wherein the wheel revolves and who the ocean into which this universe dissolves? A subtle thief, the question who, it burgles with delight, it pockets pain and happiness and slips into the night, taking all identity and leaving on the light. In engaging ourselves with the question, the question, what is most deeply true? We see how we tend to identify with the movement of our experience as being who we are, as being what is most true. In the way we identify with the water as it flows in the river of life, we see the movement, we see the change, we see the birth and death of every breath, of every moment, of every life. And we often think, we often feel that much as a wave on the ocean approaching the shore might see that it was about to be dashed and annihilated at the beach and might fear for its existence. And yet, in the wave crashing on the beach with all the drama and the glory and the foam. The water is unharmed in that process. To actually rest in seeing our, the practice, in seeing the moment-to-moment unfoldment of our experience without identifying with the particular, without grasping hold of anything that moves, that flows through to rest in that place of recognizing it just for what it is. Something arising and passing. To rest in that seeing our experience, seeing the waves of life without becoming them. Without becoming them. Clutching waves we think we are. So lost that we forget the eye of wisdom which does not belie the truth of waves and sand and seas, yet is transcendent over these. 
It's true, it's all going on. We're not saying that that's not happening. But there might be more to see, to understand. If we're not so entranced by what's happening, taking it to be who we are. A subtle thief, the question, who? Who am I? It burgles with delight. It pockets pain and happiness, then slips into the night. There's so much of our emphasis on our suffering and on our seeking for what we want. It all comes back down to a sense of I want, I don't want. We take away or at least question that sense of me that wants it and it loses so much of its potency. Pockets pain and happiness then slips into the night. Taking all identity and leaving on the light in the space that's left, when we're not grasping, not identifying onto the things that are moving through, but simply recognize them as movement, as life flowing. The light of awareness starts to shine. We start to see more clearly what is. We start to recognize, to sense that it at a very deep level, that it's not so much that I am moving through life, but much more life moving through the stillness of truth. Life moving through the stillness, through the truth that we are. Can we sit quietly for a moment or two, please? identity. May all beings come to rest in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.